0: invite you to turn with me to Daniel 8. Picking back up our study of Daniel, we had a good uh, vacation last week, or I did, I don't know about you all, but I had a wonderful time in New Orleans, and uh, thank you for allowing me to take that time off with Sarah. Speaking of which, Sarah Harrison in Virginia and I uh, had the opportunity to take a vacation to France one summer. Of course, we, we didn't come to the United States, we were living in England at the time, And uh, we have missionary friends there in Marseille and they were home in the United States and they were allowing us to use their apartment and their car while they were away. And so it was a a low budget vacation thankfully. Now at this point we had lived several years in England so we were familiar with uh, living life in a a different culture but we obviously were living uh, in a country that spoke the same language as us and so that made it a lot easier to to negotiate life in England even though it was a different culture. But uh, we had not uh, really experienced or at least I had not really experienced living life in a culture where I did not know the language and I found that very uncomfortable and sometimes frightening. It was difficult to order food which is close to my heart and uh, you know, sometimes that was difficult to even know what you were ordering. The food is wonderful there, and really enjoyed it. So it really didn't matter what you ordered; it was all good. So uh, I didn't, I didn't suffer in that respect. Uh, but driving was a new adventure. We were in somebody else's car, and uh, we didn't know the language, so obviously the road signs we couldn't understand really what they were saying. And of course, they're all different. There's not a universal stop sign, for example. And uh, so you're trying to negotiate life in a a different place. And and again, having lived in England, I was on the other side of the car, and now in France I'm back to the American side of the car, and you know, switching back and forth can get confusing sometimes. What, What side of the road am I supposed to be on? Which can be a problem when you're driving. You need to know which side of the road you're supposed to be on. So we figured it out well enough, and, and we got around, and we had a wonderful trip. It was an outstanding time, one that we'll always remember. But if you've ever lived in a, or traveled in a foreign country, you know uh, that you have to learn how to navigate and survive in that place, and sometimes it's difficult. And Daniel had to do this in Babylon, and he did it well in spite of the fact that his life was occasionally threatened because of his faithfulness to the Lord. And as we approach his book that he's written for us, Inspired by God, uh, we as Christians, living, uh, we live in a foreign land, in a, in a land that's hostile to Christianity. The Bible tells us this, that this world is not our home, and the question we are addressing in this series of sermons on Daniel is how do we faithfully live for Christ in a world that is increasingly hostile to Christians and the church without getting discouraged, without losing our way? And we can learn from Daniel because he did it very well. Now in the passage before us, uh, we read these, these, this vision. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westwards and northwards and southwards. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host." And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown and a host will be given over to it together with a regular burnt offering because of transgression and it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold countenance, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints." By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision, and did not understand it. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us this morning. I've often thought that when I reached a certain age or a certain position in life, that I would have arrived. Uh, I was particularly guilty of this as a young person. I thought as I reached each milestone of, of life that, that I would have reached a place where I would be at peace and everything would be good. And uh, as, a, as a younger person, I really desired to be a, a college athlete. And I thought if I could just become uh, an athlete in college, then I, that would be the greatest thing. And, and I will have arrived and, you know, everything would be right with the world. And I would be so cool and uh, so great. And, and I actually did achieve that. And uh, I still wasn't any cooler than I had been before, which was not very cool. And it wasn't all that great. And now I don't even care about that anymore. We're always tempted to think, and I I think you can understand what I'm talking about, that there are places in life that we could reach where we will have sense that we have arrived. We imagine a day when we have grown to a place where the struggle is over. Maybe we think we'll have arrived when we reach a certain level of spiritual maturity or a a certain level of income or a certain position in our profession or a certain stage of life like being an empty nester or retirement. We think, if I can just get to that stage, then everything is going to be all right. The struggle will be over. Everything will be peace and security. However, sorry to be the bearer of bad news, this vision that we're looking at, From Daniel tells us that this way of thinking is fool's gold. It's a a pipe dream. As long as we live on this planet, as it is now, we will never get beyond the conflict. In fact, it's going to get worse before it gets better. That is bad news that the vision gives us, but there is good news. It, It does get better, and that is ultimately certain and guaranteed. So I'm going to make two points today Uh, hostility against God's people is certain and secondly hostility against God's people is limited but let's back up a little bit and look at the details of this vision and when Daniel receives it because it's important to understand where Daniel's coming from and like me uh, he's being given this vision I think in part at least to combat the idea that getting to a certain place will Mean that you have arrived. Verse 1 gives us a timestamp on this vision. It's in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. He gets this vision that appears to him. And we encountered Belshazzar back in chapter 5, and he's, he's the person, the, the ruler, that saw the handwriting on the wall. And that very night, the Persians conquered the Babylonians. Belshazzar was the, the son of the last king of the Babylonian Empire, a fellow named Nabonidus. Nabonidus wasn't really interested in ruling all that much. He was more interested in worshipping his certain gods, which were a little different than the the normal gods that the Babylonians worshipped. And so he lived off in Arabia, and he left his son in charge uh, back at the capital city. And we understand that this vision was given during the last years of the Babylonian Empire, uh, which had risen to prominence under Nebuchadnezzar, who had conquered Jerusalem beginning in 605. Ultimately, Jerusalem fell in 586, but Daniel was uh, sent away into exile. He came to Babylon in 605 or somewhere around that time. So Daniel receives this vision after being in Babylon for 50-plus years. Now, we ask asking ourselves, why was Daniel given this vision uh, at this point in his life and in time? Well, in just a few years just a few short years, decade or so, the people of God are going to be allowed to return to Jerusalem. That night when Belshazzar's feast happens, the Persians are going to come and, and take over Babylon, and they're going to allow the Jews to return to their homeland. And they're going to be allowed to return to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding the walls and the temple. They're going to have all these visions of grandeur about uh, rebuilding the nation of Israel and how great it's going to be. And I believe that Daniel is given this vision to keep them from thinking that this new day, this new prosperity for the people of God, that they're going that that's going to mean that they will have arrived. Because what they're going to find out when they go back to Jerusalem is the walls are all broken down, the temple's been destroyed, it's overgrown. And yes, they're excited about starting the rebuilding process under Nehemiah and Ezra and with Haggai the prophet and Zechariah and these other fellows who encouraged them along the ways, but it's going to be very difficult and hard. and They're going to be enemies who oppose the work. They're going to, they're going to uh, have to build the walls with one hand and, and have a sword in the other hand. It's going to be a, a fight. It's going to be difficult. They won't have arrived at that point. So... This vision helps us to combat that false hope and really does give us a true hope. Now, let's look at the vision in particular. Now, the wonderful thing about this, uh, about Daniel 8, is it gives us the specific interpretation of the vision. We don't have to uh, speculate about what he's talking about. First we encounter this ram with two horns and and, uh, Daniel is told that this represents the Medes and the Persians. They were a a nation uh, made made up of two nations, the Media and Persia. And Persia became more powerful than Media and kind of took over. And so that's why you have a larger horn, Persia. And then you have uh, another another creature come along, a goat, and he's got this single horn. uh, And they tell us, Uh, the vision tells us that this was the king of Greece, namely Alexander the Great. And I've given you the notes there that that, uh, he came in 334 and he absolutely devastated the Persians. Uh, The Persians were still in power at that time. Uh, 539 is when the Persians took over from the Babylonians. About 200 years later, uh, the, the Greeks come along under Alexander and uh, he defeats 110,000 troops of Darius with 35,000 Greek troops. And they, they only lost 100 men in the battle, whereas the, the Babylonians lost 20,000. So they absolutely, as it says here, the ram comes along, struck the ram, broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And that's exactly what happened when Alexander the Great defeated the Persians. The goat becomes exceedingly great, verse 8 tells us. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. If you know anything about Alexander the Great, you'll know that by the time he was 26 years old, he had conquered the known world. 26 years old! He was the the supreme ruler on earth. But then by the time he was 33, he was dead. Verse 8 tells us, The goat became extremely great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Alexander the Great died. And his kingdom was divided amongst four of his generals. And we see that there, the four horns that spring up from uh, the one horn. Alexander's powerful generals uh, murdered his two sons, and they took over. Two two groups that came out of that, they divided it into areas. One was uh, the area of Syria, which was under the Seleucid dynasty, and that's going to come into play in a moment. Another notable one was the Ptolemies. They ruled the area around Egypt. Cleopatra was the last pharaoh of Egypt, and she was uh, of the Ptolemy dynasty. The Seleucids, though, Uh, this is where the little horn comes from. And his name is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And he comes to power in 175 B.C. Now, he is not a very important figure in world history. If you took Western Civ or world history in, in school, you probably didn't spend a lot of time or any time at all on Antiochus Epiphanes. He wasn't a major player on the world scene. But we're we're getting a vision that pertains to the people of God, and to the people of God, Antiochus Epiphanes was a very notorious and important person. And that brings me to my first point. Hostility against God's people is certain. Don't be surprised. Rather, be vigilant. We have an enemy out there. Antiochus IV Epiphanes was important to note in this vision because he had a demonic hatred for the people of God. His official title is Antiochus IV. Epiphanes was a blasphemous title he gave to himself later in his reign. He gave himself the name Theos Antiochus Epiphanes, which meant Antiochus the illustrious god, or Antiochus God manifest. You know, if you have an epiphany, Something is manifest to you. You realize it or understand it or it's illustrated for you. And that's what he was saying. I am God illustrated. He didn't think much of himself, did he? He was very arrogant. Uh, Some people called him, instead of Antiochus Epiphanes, they called him Antiochus Epimenes, which meant the madman. He was crazy and lusted for power. And he sought to expand his dominion to include Palestine. He was over Syria and the neighboring area, and he wanted to pull Palestine into it. The Ptolemies in Egypt didn't like that because he was getting a little too close, a little too powerful, because Israel is right there between Syria and Egypt. So he invades Egypt. Well, first he, he went into Jerusalem, and he replaced the high priest with a man of his own choosing. So first of all, he's assuming power he didn't have. He then invaded Egypt, and and as he's invading Egypt, a rumor of his death circulated among the Jews. And they were rejoicing that this guy was gone. And so they made efforts to reinstate the genuine high priest. Well, Antiochus found out about this, and he accused the people of rebellion, and so he attacked and savaged Jerusalem. He executed 40,000 people in three days in Jerusalem. Others were taken captured. He went right into the Holy of Holies in the temple and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. And you know, those were unclean animals. He defiled the temple precincts. He took the sacred furniture. He established another traitor as the high priest. And then a few years later, he tries to go out to Egypt again and he fails. And so he comes again and takes it out on Jerusalem once more. And more than 20,000 soldiers massacred the Jews assembled for worship on a Sabbath day and committed further atrocities and vandalism in the temple. And the temple was left without daily sacrifices. Religious practices were non-existent. And they set up a statue of Zeus in the temple. And human sacrifices were made on the altar there in the temple of God. Circumcision was forbidden. Unclean meat was mandatory fare for the people. And the Sabbath and other feast days were profane. And that's who we're talking about here. A real antichrist, Someone who was against God's people. Daniel gets a view of history that tells him more conflict is coming for the people of God. And that conflict will continue and will even escalate. And he's witnessed a lot himself with the, with the sacking of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Now as we read on into the New Testament, we see Jesus picking up Daniel's references to Antiochus' epiphanies and applying them to the Antichrist that is to come, the ultimate man of lawlessness who will deceive many people in the last days. So Antiochus in this vision is pointing us to the Antichrist. And it's, and on one level we understand this vision is talking about real people in history Uh, that we can identify, but it is projecting on uh, to the end times because Gabriel tells them, this is for the end. We don't know exactly what end he's talking about, and and it could mean more than one end, but there is, as the Revelation tells us, as Scripture tells us in the Gospels, Jesus tells us in the Gospels, there is an Antichrist, an ultimate man of lawlessness that's going to come at the end times, and Tychus points us to that. But as well, John tells us in 1 John 2, that he says this, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming, that ultimate last guy this coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Antiochus was one of those Antichrists, and they keep on coming. Antichrists are agents of Satan who are seeking to destroy the church and its people. They're always around being used by Satan to seek to destroy the church as a whole and individual Christians. That's why I say to you that hostility against the people of God is certain in this life. It is certain because you have an enemy that is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, seeking to destroy you. The church as a whole has an enemy who is prowling around seeking to destroy it. We need to understand that we're in a war here. We have an enemy who's shooting at us. Peter tells us, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that some sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So yes, we have an enemy. We need to be aware of that, that we're in a battle. And we also need to be aware of his tactics because the things that this vision tells us about the tactics of Antiochus point point us uh, to the tactics of all antichrist and the ultimate antichrist. We see three things that are noted here. First, the sacrifices are taken away, sanctuary overthrown, and truth is thrown to the ground. We see these things in uh, verses 11 to 12. Sacrifice taken away. The daily sacrifices or the, the, uh, the offerings, the burnt offerings, these sacrifices that were made on a daily basis were part of the liturgical discipline of the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Testament. But they no longer exist for Christians today. But they were inaugurated on a daily basis on a daily basis in the Old Testament in order to teach us the, necessi- the necessity of sacrifice if the people were to enjoy fellowship with God. The second thing that they taught them was the they taught the people that sacrifice was a daily part of their lives before God. Now Satan continues to use this against his people to pull down the children of God in the church. We have to remember daily that only in Christ's sacrifice are our sins forgiven. That's the only way that we have fellowship with God. Only through Him can we enjoy that fellowship. Satan tries to draw us away from Christ's sacrifice, and and when he does so, our consciences cloud over with guilt. The joy and assurance of fellowship with God is dissipated. That's why Jesus taught us to pray on a daily basis. Father for, you know forgive us, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins. It's also important for us to remember that sacrifice continues to be a principle that regulates the our, our daily lives as Christians. We don't bring sacrifices in order to to uh, absolve our sin or expiate our sin but We should bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord. Our lives. We're to take up our cross daily, denying ourselves. So we need to be aware of what Satan tries to do. Be aware of anything purporting to be biblical Christianity that does not emphasize the necessity of Christ's sacrifice for our forgiveness or teaches a style of discipleship that avoids the daily bearing of the cross. Such teaching does not come from above, but from below. Secondly, the sanctuary was overthrown in the days of Antiochus. Just as Antiochus sought to cast down the sanctuary, Satan seeks to destroy the new temple of God, the church, the living fellowship of God's people. And he does so in various ways. Persecution, sometimes we see in other parts of the world especially. Other times more subtly, through false teaching, lethargic worship. Discord and dissension within the body of Christ. See, Satan is able to come in and divide the church and cause it to water it down or do all manner of things, but he's trying to destroy the church. And then thirdly, truth is thrown to the ground. He likes to introduce wrong thinking, doctrinal controversy into the church. Deceitful teaching is always a mark of the Antichrist. I read in article, uh, to, for some reason they're talking about an Episcopalian bishop, John Shelby Spong, who was a, a leader in the liberal movement, uh, was very cutting edge in his day, uh, became the bishop of Newark. And now, since uh, you know, America's adopted more liberal views of things, uh, he seemed to be prophetic and ahead of his time, and he's praised in our day, and he's writing a new book. But when you look at his actual work, he became Bishop of Newark. Everywhere he has been, the church has shrunk. The Diocese of of Newark is is half the size it was after Spong left. Everywhere he's gone, he's destroyed the church. He's been used by uh, by, by Satan to destroy the church through false teaching. Hostility against God's people is certain, so don't be surprised. Rather, be vigilant. Be aware you have an enemy and be aware of his tactics. Satan is always trying to trip us up and get us off track to discourage you. And he's the author of the thinking that says if I if I can just do this, this or have that then I will have arrived. He's getting you to invest your life in the wrong goals and then disappoints you in the end. You're seeking the things of this world to fulfill you instead of looking forward to what God is going to do because he's going to do something very great and that brings us to the very short second point. Hostility against God's people is limited. So don't be discouraged. Rather, be faithful. Just a couple of things. First of all, this vision tells us that, that, yes, there's an enemy out there. He's very powerful. He's going to do some terrible things, but it's for a very specific amount of time. Verse 13 and 14, they ask, how long is this going to happen? 2,300 evenings and mornings. We don't exactly know... What that means uh, literally means 2,300 evenings and mornings. The most natural reading is is, uh, 2,300 days. But it could mean evening and morning sacrifices. It all fits into the, the, the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. But the point is, it's a very specific time. Evil is always trying to overstep its bound, and then God says, no more. He has a limit to it. It's like a dog on a chain. You know, you have the dog in a long chain, and you think, oh, he's going to come get me, and then, whack, he stops. He cannot go any further. And that's the way Satan is. He can wreak destruction within his boundaries that God has given him, but no further. And that's the same as being said here in this vision. Secondly, there's a specific day when God will make everything right. Not only does it tell us that there's 2,300 evenings and mornings for this For this persecution to go on. But it it goes on in verse 14 and says, Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. All those things are going to be stopped, but once that's over, everything is going to be made right. Everything is going to be set back to the way it is going to be. And that points us to that ultimate day when Christ returns in the new heavens and new earth, and sin is no more, and death is no more, and everything is made right. That's where we set our hope, not on arriving at some point in this life, But our hope is in that day. That's what we're living for. That's what we're looking forward to. Because anything that we get in the intermediate may be a blessing from God, but it is not ultimately fulfilling. And it is is not in a state where everything is made right. That's what we're looking forward to. Don't get your eyes off that ultimate goal. And see, there is a specific day set for judgment for those who resist God and oppress His people. That's an encouragement to us. The enemies seem to be very strong. We're very discouraged as we look around at the state of our country and the state of the world and we think, the bad guys are winning. But it's not going to be that way forever. Remember Alexander? He had conquered the world by the time he was 26, but at 33, he dies. Antiochus. he, He wreaked havoc amongst the people of God, but then he died in mysterious and painful circumstances. God will not allow evil to go unchecked. There will be a day of judgment and a day when God's people uh, are brought into uh, the rightful state into the new heavens and new earth. So yes there is an enemy out there and he's very hostile but that hostility against God's people is limited so don't be discouraged. It's easy like I mean Daniel saw the vision and it tells us that he was overcome by it and lay sick and, and he was upset Uh, about the vision and what he saw but his hope wasn't on this earth his hope was in the deliverance of god don't be discouraged rather be faithful what is it i love this last verse which we close with you know daniel had seen the vision uh he he understands the vision at least partially because he didn't know about alexander or antiochus they were 500 years after his time. So he's overcome, he lays sick for days, then he rises up and went about the king's business. I, I think that's the most awesome verse. You know, in the midst of this vision and, and the, the difficulty that the church is going to face, and he's so upset about it, and, and, and maybe even fearful about what's coming for the church in the, in the, in the days ahead, What does he do? What does he do about this? Knowing that there's an enemy out there uh, and and, and knowing that God's in control of all things, he rises up and he goes and fulfills his callings. He does what God has has commanded him to do. And his job was to work in the the government. And that's what he did, and he did it faithfully. And as we've looked at in the previous uh, seven chapters, he did it faithfully. Serving first his Lord and then fulfilling his callings in this life. And having an impact where he was. He wasn't in Jerusalem. He wasn't amongst God's people. But he was having an impact where he was. Living faithfully for the Lord. He saw this stuff and so he got up and did what he was supposed to be doing. And that's true of us. Be faithful in what God has called you to do. Whatever he's called you to do, yes, be aware you've got an enemy. But know the end is coming soon. And in the meantime, do what God has called you to do. May the Lord give us grace and strength to do so. Let's pray together.